the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering this afternoon. Today we're going to uh, hear from J.W. Richards. He is one of three authors of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. That's coming up for the second hour of today's program. So uh, listen up for that. It's a rather uh, interesting conversation. Um, Also, we're going to take a look at some of the day's headlines, beginning with an announcement made earlier today about the state of Oregon and lifting the mask mandate by March the 31st. Now, according to Oregon's health officials, they're going to end the mask mandate for indoor public places and schools no later than, but possibly sooner than March the 31st. Um, If uh, COVID hospitalizations drop to around 400 occupied beds, that's according to Oregon Health Authority. Well, the evidence from Oregon and around the country is clear. And I'm quoting now. I'm not sure I believe everything said in the quote, but masks saves lives by slowing the spread of COVID-19. That's a quote from the state epidemiologist, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, in a statement. We should see COVID-19 hospitalizations drop by the end of March because so many Oregonians are wearing masks and taking other steps to protect themselves and each other, end quote. Well, Oregon is one of only 11 states with an indoor mask mandate, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Health officials expect to see about 400 COVID-19 hospitalizations by the end of next month, about the same number as before the Omicron wave. Now, if hospitalizations drop to that number earlier, the state will consider lifting the mandate then. Once the mandate is lifted, businesses will be free to set their own mask policies, according to the Oregon Health Authority. In other words, you wouldn't be required by the state to wear them, but some businesses may require you to wear them on their own accord. Well, Oregon announced its projected end date for masks at the same time it extended existing requirements. Temporary mask rules were set to lapse this week with state officials unveiling some new what they call permanent rules. I don't know why they refer to them as permanent, knowing it freaks everybody out, but new permanent rules Monday to extend those along with the promise to end the requirement by the 31st of March, which sort of defies the use of the word permanent. Anyway, the state's decision to extend masking requirements beyond this week came despite hours of testimony opposing the permanent rule. The health authority published summaries with some of the concerns expressed in public testimony and provided responses, including information about mask safety and the rationale behind mandating masks for everyone, including the vaccinated. So the bottom line, Oregon will lift the mask mandate by March 31st or sooner If, in fact, hospitalizations drop to around 400 occupied beds, according to the um, Oregon Health Authority. I'm not holding my breath, although some mayors do that and they can take pictures without their masks. Another story. Uh, Anyway, um, I'm not holding my breath, but at least it gives some hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel in terms of what the state of Oregon is requiring. So there you have it. And we'll certainly continue to follow the story as it develops, as I'm almost certain it will. But at least some light at the end of a very long, smothering 
tunnel. Well, in other news in the battle over the freedom of speech, Spotify says it's not going to silence Joe Rogan after a video compilation of him repeatedly using the N-word surface this week. The company's chief executive officer said Rogan has since made a public apology, a mea culpa. He used the word in the context of trying to understand why the word is used uh, by some groups. African-Americans are free to use it and he used different examples of how it can be acceptably used, but why virtually no one else can. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson declared a state of emergency Sunday afternoon as approximately 500 trucks and vehicles with the Freedom Convoy continued to linger in the streets of the Canadian capital to protest vaccine mandates. They're calling it cruelty to residents who've had to live with it for quite some time. And Black Lives Matter chapter founder Pamela Moses of Tennessee was sentenced to six years in prison for illegally registering to vote while serving probation. Several Ohio State University departments are sponsoring Sex Week put on by students organizations that include one event where students are asked to help thank an abortion provider. Huh. And what's being called Russian disinformation, President Biden's administration has taken a hard line against scrutiny of reports on Ukraine and Russian relations, repeatedly dismissing critical lines of questioning as Russian talking points and misinformation. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams is facing backlash over the weekend after she visited an elementary school and posed maskless with a room full of young children who are arrayed behind her, all masked because of the school mandate. She was the exception. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican out of California, outlined what Republicans will do if they gain the majority in the House of Representatives, stressing that a bipartisan committee on China will be created and the origins of the coronavirus pandemic will be investigated. And the Pentagon has concluded that the August suicide bombing in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed 13 U.S. service members and more than 170 Afghans during the rather frantic evacuation near the U.S. embassy was not preventable. I would love to read more fully how they're defining not preventable, but that was their conclusion. Again, the Pentagon and in a Ukraine sanctions warning, U.S. Senator Ben Cardin said Sunday that Russia will face the strongest possible sanctions if they invade Ukraine in the form of heavy economic and political consequences. Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping presented a common front against the United States during their summit in Beijing just hours before the Winter Olympics opening ceremony, which very few watched. Following a three-hour-long meeting, the two leaders published a lengthy joint statement pledging to stand together to oppose NATO expansion, the AUKUS nuclear submarine partnership, potential U.S. deployment of intermediate range missiles in either Europe or Asia and interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext. Russia also reaffirmed its support for the one China principle, confirms that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China and opposes any forms of independence of Taiwan. Well, Taiwan's foreign ministry called the declaration an insult to the peaceful spirit embodied by the Olympic rings. The Putin G statement 
also declared that cooperation between the two countries has surpassed the level of traditional alliances. Friendship between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas for cooperation, it said. Now, the enemy of my enemy is my friend is sort of the idea. You might recall my conversation last week on the subject of Russia and China, and they have lots of reasons not to be in alliance with one another except for their hatred and opposition to the United States. One professor of the Moscow-based National Research University Higher School of Economics said the statement showed that Russia and China were becoming increasingly aligned on sensitive geopolitical issues. And earlier, China could remain aloof from some European subjects and Russia from some Asian ones. Now they will begin to get closer and talk about joint actions He told a local news website. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Our second hour, a conversation with J.W. Richards, who, along with two other authors, uh, wrote The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour of today's program. A Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping have declared themselves to be in agreement on a broad range of issues, from NATO expansion to Taiwan. The National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan pointed out to, on Sunday that in their lengthy declaration, they didn't use the word alliance. He also noted that the word Ukraine was not mentioned in the Putin Xi statement issued after their Friday summit in Beijing and argued that that suggests that China is not so excited about cheerleading Russia on Ukraine. Well, Sullivan's uh, take on the declaration came during an appearance on Sunday where host Martha McCallum said that Russia and Chinese leaders had said, we have a deep friendship. We have an unshakable alliance now. The two of us are in lockstep. Well, asked for the White House reaction to that joint statement, Sullivan replied, well, first, Martha, they didn't use the word alliance. They used some other phrases, but did not actually go so far as to call themselves allies. Well, McCallum countered by quoting from the joint statement, friendship between the two states has no limits. There are no forbidden areas of cooperation, end quote. They also suggested China would have Russia's back on their decisions with regard to Ukraine. And the same would be true for Russia of China's decisions with regard to Taiwan. She continued, that sounds like an alliance. Well, he uh, responded, that's Sullivan, 5,000 words of that statement and 5,000 words that the two leaders put down on that paper. The word Ukraine does not appear, which suggests that China is not so excited. Well, he then went on to talk about the, uh, the U.S. and its allies needing to have confidence in themselves as the West collectively accounts for more than half of the world's GDP compared to Russia and China, which together comprise Less than 20 percent. Well, as the world wonders if Vladimir Putin will invade Ukraine, the battle for the West is already underway. Without firing a shot, Mr. Putin has attacked the transatlantic alliance at its weakest link, Germany. When Chancellor Olaf Scholz visit the White House on Monday, it's going to be the most important and was the most important meeting between a U.S. president and a German leader since before the Iraq war. Well, President Biden's embrace of Mr. Scholz is only the latest act in the U.S. administration's courtship of Germany, but the chancellor will arrive and did with one eye trained on Moscow. Mr. Scholz, who took office in December, is no Putin crony like um, uh, Gerard 
uh, Schroeder, Germany's chancellor between 98 and 2005, but both are part of the Social uh, Democratic Party, which sees ties to Russia as central to its identity and essential for Germany. To justify their outreach, leaders regularly cite their Cold War mantra, America is indispensable, but Russia is immovable. Mr. Schultz uh, has either ignored Mr. Putin's threats against Ukraine or, when pressed, mused on the value of engagement. So the meeting that took place here in the U.S. today, very important, and we'll report on that tomorrow. Well, in other news, Senator Rob Portman and Senator Maggie Hassan uh, point out that as Rabbi Charlie Crichton Walker was preparing to begin Saturday services on the morning of January 15th of this year, he welcomed a man who had knocked on the window and looked cold inside his synagogue. Crichton Walker, the rabbi, made the man tea and then began his live stream Shabbat service. With his uh, back turned to the man, the rabbi rabbi recalls rather hearing a click, turning around and seeing a gun. They went into greater detail about what happened next. Newt Gingrich weighed in, saying the nation, or rather the national debt, has passed $30 trillion. It's clearly time to start talking about balancing the federal budget. Now, you might recall Gingrich is an architect of the then-popular Contract with America. Frederick Hess reminds us that the Supreme Court recently announced it will be taking up two cases charging Harvard University and the University of North Carolina with illegally using racial preferences to admit students. And John Lott says, with violent crime increasing over the last two years, Americans want a solution. But President Joe Biden constantly frames violent crime as only a gun problem. Again, it was the sole focus of his speech in New York on Thursday of last week. Even when he mentions police or prosecutors, it was in the terms of enforcing gun control laws. David Bossy weighs in, lamenting that he has never thought he'd live in a world where legendary left-wing musicians like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell were happily carrying water for the man on an important public policy issue. But that's the crazy situation we find ourselves in as we navigate through the coronavirus pandemic that's cost nearly 900,000 Americans their lives. And in business, infrastructure and essentials like uh, potable water are key to supporting business. And Austin, Texas, is having trouble keeping its drinking water clean again. A Florida college student who built a Twitter bot that tracks Elon Musk's private jet said on Saturday the Federal Aviation Administration granted him freedom of information requests to track SpaceX jets. Well, the Beijing Winter Olympics opened to abysmal ratings The 16 million viewers is a record low for an opening ceremony with the previous low at 20.1 million viewers for the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. According to polls, one of the main components to the lack of interest is the Olympic Games uh, location itself. According to the National Security Advisor, there is a very distinct possibility Russia will attack Ukraine any time now. Those are his exact words. On ABC's This Week, Jake Sullivan said, we believe that there is a very distinct possibility that Vladimir Putin will order an attack on Ukraine. It could take a number of different forms. It could happen as soon as tomorrow or it could happen some weeks yet. More from the story. What do they plan to do about it? Well, Sullivan said, we're ready to respond in a united, swift and severe way with our allies and partners should he choose to move forward with a military escalation. They're marching against Russian uh, in the streets of Kharkiv uh, in Ukraine. President Biden rewarded Iran with relief on nuke sanctions. 
from that story, a U.S. negotiator um, had uh, back, I should say negotiators head back to Vienna for what could be a make or break session. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken signed several sanctions waivers related to Iran's civilian nuclear activities. The move reverses the Trump administration's decision to rescind them. The waivers are ultimately intended to entice Iran back to the 2015 deal that it has been violating since former President Donald Trump withdrew from the agreement in 2018 and reimposed U.S. sanctions. In the short term, the waiver will exempt foreign countries and companies that work in Iran's civilian nuclear sector, sector rather, from American penalties. From the Wall Street Journal editorial board, it's egregious that all this happened as Iran continues to spread terror in a region. Uh, see the Houthis, for example, and Stonewall International Nuclear uh, inspectors, Washington has held off on censoring Tehran as the International Atomic Energy Agency, fearful that a rebuke at the organization's board of governors will cause the Iranians to walk. But if Iran won't allow outsiders to fully verify its nuclear activity, what good is a deal that claims to limit nuclear activity? Again, from the Wall Street Journal and Nikki Haley on Twitter, the former at the U.N. ambassador, Biden is giving Iran a win for absolutely nothing in return to get into Iran's good graces. The Ayatollahs know Biden will do anything to keep them at the table and they're taking full advantage of us in the process. Well, after uh, leftists dig up an old uh, Rogan clip where he uses the N-word, Spotify stands firm. According to the CEO, Daniel Eck, while I strongly condemn what Joe has said and I agree with the decision to remove past episodes from our platform, I realize some will want more and I want to make one point very clear. I do not believe that silencing Joe is the answer. We should have clear lines around content and take action when they are crossed, but canceling voices is a slippery slope. Joe Rogan will remain on the platform. Well, Senator Cruz is calling for an investigation of GoFundMe over their treatment of Canadian truckers. Uh, Rebecca Downs from Town Hall writes, Senator Ted Cruz is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate GoFundMe after they ended a fundraiser for Canadian truckers. They had ultimately reached approximately $10 million. Initially, as I reported, the crowdfunding platform announced that donors had to request a refund by the 19th of February. They had to request it or else the funds would be redistributed. Well, after pushback and threats of investigation, the platform ultimately decided to automatically issue refunds. Meanwhile, the mayor of Ottawa has uh, declared a state of emergency over the truckers. Again, Ted Cruz said, today I sent a letter to the Federal Trade Trade Commission asking that the FTC open an investigation into GoFundMe into whether they're committing deceptive trade practices. Uh, Sunday Morning Futures, uh, GoFundMe announced, um, he made the report on Sunday Morning Futures, GoFundMe announced on Friday it had shut down the Freedom Convoy 2022 fundraisers and would no longer distribute donations to the event's organizers, citing police reports of violence and unlawful activities as justification. The company initially planned to allow donors to request refunds and donate the remaining funds to charities but elected to automatically refund contributions after public backlash. When people gave money, they gave money under the promise it would go to the Freedom Convoy, not to whatever left-wing political ideology GoFundMe and other Silicon Valley companies support, Cruz says. They are deceiving consumers, and it's wrong. And again, he's asked the FTC to probe GoFundMe into uh, their actions. 
Well, teachers are bailing on the profession and companies are quickly hiring them. Teachers left their profession at a higher rate than any other industry in 2021. The story notes many of those are teachers exhausted from talking between online and classroom infrastructure, shift uh, infrastructure, rather uh, shifting COVID-19 protocols and dealing with challenging students, parents and administrators. More than three in four voters believe members of Congress have unfair stock trading advantage, as proven by Nancy Pelosi. And Democrats' former presidential hopeful has been convicted. He was a rock star of the left media outlets. He was the man taking the fight to Donald Trump and would likely be the one to take him down. He was even touted as a Democratic presidential hopeful. He was Michael Avenatti, a lawyer representing adult performer Stormy Daniels. I hate referring to her as an adult performer. There's nothing particularly adult about what she did in her anyway in her per- profession. But in her lawsuit against Trump, well, long gone are those pie in the sky sentiments. As this past uh, past Friday, the disgraced lawyer was convicted of embezzling some three hundred thousand dollars from the former client Daniels. Avenatti will be spending the next several years residing in a cell while Trump is living at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, contemplating another run at the White House. Of course, he is facing troubles of his own as investigations are mounting. Meanwhile, the Main Street media is um, ignoring the uh, Johns Hopkins study on lockdowns. Mainstream media outlets have avoided reporting on Johns Hopkins University's recently released study on the failed efficacy of COVID lockdowns, as if the study itself were the plague. MSM outlets, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, ABC, and CBS all avoided any discussion or even acknowledgement of the study. And the online sites for the Associated Press, Reuters, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Axios, USA Today, and Political likewise completely ignored it. The reason is obvious and has everything to do with the study's um, findings and conclusion. And while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social cost. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument, end quote. Um, that not only doesn't fit the narrative, it refutes it. So you won't hear a thing about it. 16 UPenn female swimmers say no to a trans teammate. Leah Thomas, the male transgender swimmer who's been systematically obliterating women's uh, swimming records as a member of the University of Pennsylvania's women's swim team, was hit with a proverbial bucket of cold water last week. 16 of his his, uh, teammates uh, sent a letter to Ivy League officials stating that they don't want him on the team. And while they expressed their support for his decision to transition, they also noted that the biology of sex is a separate issue for someone's gender identity and biologically. Leah holds an unfair advantage over competition in the women's category. They cited that Thomas, who competed on the men's swim team for three years before transitioning to the women's team, went from number 462, 462 as a male to number one as a female. The letter comes after the NC2A's Board of Governors decided to leave the policy on transgenders competing up to each sport's national governing body, which is a rather cowardly uh, thing to do. Border crossing arrests hit a new record last year and news that comes as little shock to anyone paying attention to the situation that the administration has created at the U.S. southern border last year. 
uh, set a new record for illegal border crossing arrests at 1.9 million. To make matters worse, Border Patrol agents certainly don't catch everyone, and roughly 20% of the people who were arrested illegally uh, crossing the border were subsequently released into the U.S. interior. Border Patrol agents have expressed their growing frustration at the administration's de facto open border, a reality that was uh, evidenced in the recent viral video depicting several agents engaging in a shouting match with Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our five o'clock hour, a conversation with J.W. Richards, co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, China chose a Uyghur athlete for the Olympic ceremony amid ongoing genocide. A Dutch reporter was dragged away by Chinese communist agents during a live broadcast. And NBC took both sides approach to the Chinese human rights abuses during the opening ceremony. Opening ceremony viewership was down 43 percent from 2018 and Olympians decry deplorable food and living conditions at quarantine facilities. Former Vice President Mike Pence is defending his actions on January 6th, rebuking Trump as wrong. And the Republican National Committee overwhelmingly voted to censure Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for sitting on the January 6th panel. Adding fuel to inflation fire, the House passed the so-called America Competes, or as some put it, America Concedes Act, and GOP voters sued to block the New York congressional map. Nancy Pelosi spent more than $500,000 on private jets, claiming we have a moral obligation to reduce emissions. We meaning you, of course. Australian police uh, barged into a Catholic mass to check for mask compliance. And a Canadian judge blocked an unvaccinated dad's shared custody of his kids. The Anti-Defamation League has changed the definition of racism after the Whoopi Goldberg incident. You can read more on that in the Jerusalem Post. And Eric Adams apologized for calling white NYPD officers crackers in a 2019 video. Lots of apologizing going on. The Tennessee BLM founder has been sentenced to six years in prison for voting illegally. Well, this day in history, 1795, the 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution dealing with states' sovereign immunity is ratified. 1948, General Dwight D. Eisenhower resigns as U.S. Army Chief of Staff. He is succeeded by General Omar Bradley. 1962, President John F. Kennedy imposes a full trade embargo on Cuba. 1964, the Beatles arrive in New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport to begin the first American tour. 1984, Space Shuttle Challenger astronauts Bruce McCandless II and Robert Stewart go on the first untethered spacewalk, which lasts nearly six hours. 1986, Haitian President for Life Jean-Claude Duvalier, he flees his country, ending 28 years of his family's rule. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, biotech billionaire Dr. Patrick Soon uh, Xiong strikes a $500 million deal to buy the Los Angeles Times, the San Diego Union-Tribune, and some other publications. Well, Jesse James was one of the first bandits to hold up a moving train. Unlike the Hollywood lore, however, nobody chased trains on horseback and jumped on board. Well, instead, near Adair, Iowa, in 1873, James and his gang loosened a section of track on the Chicago 
um, Rock Island and Pacific Railway. They used a rope to dislodge the uh, the track, derailing the locomotive. It killed the engineer and stopped the rest of the cars on the tracks. Then two masked robbers, most likely Jesse James and his brother Frank, ran from freight car to freight car until they found a safe they thought held a large cache of, of gold. But they found only $2,000, so they went from passenger car to passenger car, relieving riders of their money and valuables. Even though the amount they netted was pretty small, the boldness of the robbery was big news and helped establish the James Boys as two of America's first celebrity criminals. If you could put those two words together. Well, a 2017 article in Criminal Justice Review took a detailed look at data from 241 train robberies between 1866 and 1930. It shows a number of traits that old school train robbers, including those of the James brothers, had in common. They were hugely dangerous, both for the robbers and, of course, for the victims. Rail crews and passengers didn't look kindly on being robbed. And nearly one in three or one third 32.4% of the robbers, uh, robberies rather, they fought back with fists, with guns, and both. In 9.5% of the robberies, at least one bandit was killed on the spot or in pursuit. It was worse for victims. At least one rail crew member or passenger was shot 29.1% of the time, and at least one victim was killed 13.5% of the time. The average thefts were relatively small. (coughs) Excuse me, the means... The mean loss per robbery was about $21,550, but the number included one huge robbery. (coughs) 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 Well, there we go. Would you mind grabbing water from the other room? (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. I still have a very rough throat. And uh, Sam is going to go get me some water. So pardon me. Very frustrating. Thank you, sir. Well, that was extremely fast. All right. Okay. Let's try this again. Well, the mean loss uh, per robbery was about $21,550, but that number included one huge robbery, that grossed $2 million. Well, you might be wondering, why on earth are you bringing all of that up? Isn't it ancient history? Well, railroads, law enforcement, private detectives, and even private citizens went all out to put an end to those train robberies. And it was a thing of the past. Union Pacific didn't release specific data on the value of what was lost, but said the increase in crime cost at least $5 million last year. We're talking about train robbers in the 21st century and to be more specific now back then pinkerton agents were even more determined some chased their suspects for years over several continents and even dis uh, disinterred bodies to prove that robbers who were rumored to be dead were actually dead in all for every dollar lost to train robbery some railways would spend about five million dollars to put the perpetrators behind bars or in the ground Well, obviously, none of these railroad executives, employees, lawmen or posse members could have predicted that train robbing uh, what it would be like in 2022 during the term of Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. What's the danger for today's robbers and victims? No guns or horses are involved. Today's train robbers just wait for the train to stop, usually a short distance from the UPS distribution center in East Los Angeles. 
They uh, stroll up to the containers on the rail cars. They cut the locks with bolt cutters. Then they help themselves to packages from Amazon, UPS, the post office. They stand there tearing the packages open, looking for Apple watches, Xboxes, Nike gear. They can sell for pennies on the dollar. They litter the uh, the tracks with packages they think are worthless, load the good stuff into their pickups and vans and drive off into the sunset only to come back the next day. The Union Pacific Railroad reports that an average of 90 containers are broken into every day. And the average thefts now are huge. Union Pacific didn't release specific data on the value of what was lost, but they said the increase in crime cost at least $5 million last year, not counting losses to all its victimized customers between 1866 to 1930. All 261 train robberies that were reported caused fewer losses than that. All of them combined. Union Pacific is trying to stop the bleeding. It's deploying drones. They've hired extra security. They've asked the Los Angeles Police Department, California Highway Patrol, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to hold off train robbers. But they don't get a, a, a scrap of cooperation from the uh, Gascon um, ultra-liberal DA. In December, a letter from the Union Pacific's Director of Public Affairs, Adrian Guerrero, uh, to Gascon, uh, summed up the problem rather clearly. Criminals are caught and arrested, turned over to local authorities for booking, arraigned before the local courts. Charges are reduced to a misdemeanor or petty offense, and the criminal is released after paying a nominal fee. These same individuals are generally caught and released back onto the streets in less than 24 hours. Even with all the arrests made, the no-cash bail policy and extended time frame for suspects to appear in court is causing rather re-victimization, uh, to Union Pacific by these same criminals. In fact, criminals boast to our officers that charges will be pled down to simple trespassing, which bears no serious consequence. And the cost to everyone is astronomical. In the middle of uh, January, 17 cars of a Union Pacific train derailed in Lincoln Heights, which is the same area where the vandalism has been occurring. Union Pacific spokesman said, uh, fortunately, no crew members were injured, and that's always a good thing. It's unclear whether the derailment was deliberate, like the famous James Gang robbery, or just the result of the train trying to plow through tons of litter from previous robberies because they are just littering the ground, including the tracks. But this is much, this much rather, is clear. Until the voters of Los Angeles stand up and recall Gascon from office, there's no need for local news crews to film the latest train robbery. They can just run the same sad video over and over again with the same sad uh, thieves doing the same thing over and over again with relative impunity. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll, uh, break, I should say. We'll be back in just a few moments. And in the second hour, we'll hear from J.W. Richards, one of three co-authors of The Price of Panic. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank you, Sam, for the water. I've got this scratchy throat that every once in a while just sort of emerges. I had to sing this weekend, and I'm telling you, I prayed every moment of it that that wouldn't happen uh, while singing. Anyway, appreciate the... Uh, the water. Uh, just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with one of three authors, Jay Richards, 
Uh, The Price of Panic is the title of the book. So that's coming up in our next hour. Well, as a former school board member and currently a public school teacher of 30 years, Brenda Lebsack says, I want to share some information with parents that school districts won't tell them. Under a program called Multi-Tiered Systems of Support, many outside agencies have access to students without parental knowledge or consent. She says many of those agencies provide mental health support either in school via wellness centers or through virtual platforms using crisis phone numbers, suicide hotlines, text messaging or Instagram. Many of those agencies advise kids that they are... Uh, myriad genders to choose from and that they can make up their own gender. They also send them into chat spaces where minors are mixed with random adults to explore their gender or sexuality in a welcoming space. The following are several examples. And again, uh, Brenda Lebsack, who is a a former school board member and currently public uh, school teacher of some 30 years. My school district partners with Planned Parenthood for sex education. Planned Parenthood tells students they can text PP now, Planned Parenthood now or a, a number. I tested it out and texted. I'm scared about puberty and unsure of my gender. What should I do? Planned Parenthood sent me. Auto text messaging asking me to select a gender. It gave me those options. Boy, girl, cisgender, gender fluid, intersex, non-binary, questioning, transgender, something else or name your own. After I clicked the button that said, what should I do if I identify as another gender? Planned Parenthood sent me text messages explaining puberty blockers, explaining that they allow kids more time to decide their gender. Then it sent me a way to make an appointment with the nearest Planned Parenthood clinic for gender affirming care. This was all done without parental knowledge or consent. I took screenshots of every text it sent me, she goes on to say. Another example is the Trevor Project, which describes its mission as seeking to end suicide among lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and questioning young people. My school district works with the Trevor Project and provides suicide or crisis hotline numbers in every student bathroom from preschool to high school. The Trevor Project uh, lifeline and she gives the number. Students also can text and she gives another number, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I texted the same question. I'm anxious about puberty and unsure about my gender. What should I do? The Lifeline sent me information about many gender options, sent me chat spaces I could join with random adults and asked the typical suicide questions, the answers to which are intended to ensure I wouldn't harm myself. When I was a school board member, the local children's hospital requested a five-year partnership with our district to provide free mental health services to students. Because this sounded too good to be true, I inquired further. I learned that the Children's Hospital of Orange County not only added a new pediatric psychiatric clinic, but it also added a pediatric gender clinic. When I sent email questions about the new gender clinic, I learned that it was socially transitioning children at age five and medically transitioning children at age nine. The head endocrinologist um, sent me the protocols they use to train their mental health workers concerning gender identity issues, which were the World Professional Association for Transgender Health and the University of California of San Francisco Standards of Care. Both these documents clearly state that mental health workers should only affirm a child's gender identity, no matter the age of the child and no matter what the gender identity or pronouns the child thinks are right for him, her, z, they, nas, here, zir, Etc. The job of the mental health worker is to help parents also affirm whatever gender children think best fit them, whether it's uh, to be both genders, neither gender, gender fluid, transgender or something else on the unlimited gender spectrum. The documents also state that medical treatments are the best answer to treat or cure gender dysphoria. 
uh, regardless of the risks, regardless of whether or not they are approved for that purpose by the Food and Drug Administration, and regardless of the lack of longitudinal studies and research into those treatments. In fact, the most recent version of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Manual, now in draft form, added a chapter called Unix. This chapter normalizes Unix and says uh, prepubescent boys may voluntarily choose chemical or physical castration so their bodies will align and be uh, congruent with their authentic self. With their authentic self. The document stated that prepubescent castration potentially can add years to a person's life. Well, these mental health workers who are trained according to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health and University of California at San Francisco Standards of Care through the Children's Hospital are working with our children in our schools, wellness centers, under the program of multi-tiered systems of support. However, parents are not aware of how these mental health workers are being trained. In the elementary school where I teach, we have new mental health workers being hired right out of college. Anyway, the um, the article that she expresses in some detail goes on from there. Schools conspiring with outside groups behind parents' backs to counsel kids on myriad gender choices. And I wonder, do you know what's happening in your school with your kids? Might be worth asking. All right, I think we're out of time and need to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. And then in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with J.W. Richards, co-author with two others of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe, the book published by Regnery. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, but what do we actually know about the pandemic and have the decisions that have been made about how to respond, have they been correct? Have they been scientifically sound? And how are decisions being made? Well, my next guest is the co-author of a very important book, The Price of Panic. How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Now, the human cost of the emergency response to COVID-19 has far outweighed the benefits. Uh, That's the sobering verdict of this um, book. And the trio of scholars, a biologist, uh, Douglas Axe, a statistician, William Briggs, and a philosopher, my next guest, Jay Richards, in this comprehensive assessment of the worst panic-induced disaster in history. Once again, the book is titled The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Now, for the first time in history, they point out, the world shut itself down by choice, all for fear of a virus, COVID-19. It wasn't well understood. The government, with the support of most Americans, ordered the closure of tens of thousands of small businesses, many of them never to return. And almost every school and college in the country sent its students home to finish the school year in front of a computer. Churches canceled worship services. Social distancing went from a non-word to a moral obligation overnight. Moral preening on social media achieved ever new heights. Well, that is the... uh, scope of the book we're going to review. And uh, as you might recall, uh, Dr. Richards was a guest with us about a week or so ago, and I invited him back to talk more fully about the book. Uh, Jay Richards is a research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, co-author of The Privileged Planet, How Our Place in the Cosmos is Designed for Discovery, and author of Money, Greed, and God. He joins us today to talk about his latest collaboration, The Price of Panic. Thank you so much for joining us once again today. Georgine, thanks for having me back. My pleasure. 
You know, this is such an important book because it helps those of us who are watching the experts and those in positions of authority, policymakers, politicians, Mm -hmm. and the like, make decisions that conflict with other decisions uh, that don't seem to add up, but we don't really know how to ask the right questions or where to go for the right answers. And this collaboration really does raise important questions that many of us have been asking and longing for some clear-headed answers to. Talk a little bit about this collaboration and how the three of you decided it was time to take on uh, the policy decisions and the cost of those policy decisions uh, following COVID-19? Well, it it was actually in March when we realized that uh, speculative computer models were being essentially used as the evidence to justify shutting down the world. Uh, Imperial College London uh, computer model in late March predicted that the infection fatality rate of the bug was going to be 3.4%. That's where we got this number, about 2.2 million Americans dead unless we shut everything down. It came from this predictive model. And predictive models are only as good as the assumptions that are plugged into them. They're not by themselves evidence. And so if you have a reason to think the assumptions of the model are wrong, well, then you have good reason to think the conclusions are going to be wrong. As they say, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, the three of us, one, the statistician, and, and then Doug X, my biologist colleague, and I all know something about statistical modeling. So I honestly think that's the thing that led us to worry right from the beginning. That's why we actually started writing a book on April the 1st. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, we found out that that Imperial College London model was just completely useless. It was written in an old language, computer language called Fortran. It had all sorts of bugs in it. And the assumption that infection fatality rate of the virus was 3.4%. As soon as we got evidence, we realized, okay, that's, that's wrong probably by an order of magnitude. Our estimate is that at most, the infection fatality rate is about 0.26% and probably lower than that. So they had overestimated it by about 14 times. And so that's where we got the kind of panic. And this idea that a speculative model in the ear of a few people like the Director General of the World Health Organization and two or three public health officials in the U.S. government could essentially orchestrate a global shutdown is just something that we, we found terrifying. And so in the book, you know, we're not really surprised, but we suspected the response would end up being doing more damage than the coronavirus itself. And we think we've, we've made a pretty strong case that, unfortunately, the, the cure has been worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think for the average American, as we've been looking looking on and trying to follow what the experts and politicians have been telling us, uh, we have questions. But when we raise questions or question some of the decisions that have been made, um, we're told that we're anti-science, that we need to rely mm-hmm. on the experts. And while we would agree that we want people who who are, are expert in their field and we want the, the science to guide us, we can't have much confidence in the science because, quite frankly, what we're hearing is a series of contradictory um, reports and interpretations that uh, conflict as well. Uh, So where do we begin? Uh, Maybe maybe we begin by asking where the pandemic started, who started it, and and as you've pointed out, how we arrived at the panic, at least initially, uh, that sent us all home from our offices and from our, our school desks. Well, it was essentially, the funny thing is, is that if you knew where to look, you you knew that uh, scientists were in no agreement whatsoever about this. There are public health officials uh, at Stanford Medical School and Oxford and Harvard and Yale that said, look, there's no, there's no testing 
that's been done of this this population-wide lockdown. And in fact, the World Health Organization itself in 2019 had reported, had done surveyed all the studies that were relevant at the time and said, actually, there's no good evidence for lockdowns. But in March, we got we were sort of told by the media that this is the, the sort of official take on these things. And I think that's what we need to realize uh, is that if you're just you, you think, OK, I don't I don't know anything about the science. And that's going to be true for most of us. Think about okay, where are you getting your information? If you're just getting your information from uh, CNN or from your your Twitter newsfeed, at least be aware of that. So you know there was a poll in in July that asked Americans, okay, what do you think the uh, the percentage of Americans that died from COVID nineteen is? And the average American guessed nine percent. Well, if you actually just went to the CDC website and actually just did a little addition and, and, and division, you'd discover that the number is actually 0.06%. So the average American thinks it's 150 times more deadly than it is. Well, we're not reading science journals. That's not where we've gotten this impression. We've gotten it overwhelmingly from the media. And I think we, we, it has got to be an opportunity for us to realize how much the media mediates the information that supposedly comes from scientists or from other experts. In fact, we're not actually hearing from the experts. We're hearing it uh, from media talking heads who very often are 27-year-olds with journalism degrees that actually have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I hate to say it. But, you know, don't react uh, immediately on these sorts of things if you're not getting some kind of access uh, to somebody other than the media mediators. That's what the word means. Media means is they come between us. And we honestly think that it, it's, it's frankly the media um, panic porn is what we call it, then being mm. amplified by the social media, played the lion's share of the role in this. Yeah, there are a few government officials and, and scientific officials that were saying certain things, but the, there was a major debate going on among the actual scientists. So most of the panic, I think it has to be laid at the feet of, of the media. Well, that's that's absolutely true. In fact, we can cite cases in which some of those genuine experts attempted to weigh in on the subject and were either censored or discredited uh, to discourage people from considering any other alternative or to even acknowledge that among scientists there was not a consensus as to not only what the problem was, but what the solution might be. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what was so distressing. And we have a major section of the book just talking about that. But, you know, most of us that were really trying to pay attention knew there'd be physicians or scientists that would say something on Twitter or Facebook and, or, or YouTube, a video interview on YouTube and from a genuine expert uh, that would just suddenly be pulled down. That's what made this thing in some ways so, so creepy, honestly, is that you had the, the big tech, essentially, you had social media networks becoming arbiters of a scientific debate so that you could have an epidemiologist arguing with another epidemiologist and they would favor one over the other. And the general rule was always that they would favor the person who had a sort of government official status. So if it's a, a person, a scientist working for the government or especially for the World Health Organization, then the media and social media giants would treat them as if they were essentially infallible oracles that, that were sort of bequeath the authority to speak on behalf of science. But that's not how this works. It's not like if you happen to work for the government of the World Health Organization, you've sort of won the gold medal of science or something like that. It doesn't make you more credible than an epidemiologist at Stanford Medical School or something like that. But that overwhelmingly, that was the rule that they used. Well, is this a science official or is this just some flunky teaching at Harvard University? I mean, with that's the literally PhD. how it often went. <laughs> yeah, with a PhD in a relevant field. Absolutely bizarre. We've got to get over this idea that 
Just because you're a public health official doesn't mean that you have any more knowledge or smarts on the subject than some other scientist that's independent. In fact, if anything, trust the independent scientist because he or she does not have the same incentives to terrify. If you're working for the government, your incentive is going to be sort of overshoot the estimate. If you, have, you know, if you had to predict and you say, well, a million people die and only a thousand die, then you can say, well, good thing we responded. But if you say, well, 10 people are going to die and a thousand people die, then you're looking for a jo- another job. And so if anything, government public health officials have an incentive to overshoot the dangers and to overshoot the risk. And so that's why I think actually independent scientists outside government should, if anything, be given more credibility on these things. We're talking about a very important book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Dr. Jay Richards is my guest. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jay Richards. He is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. One of the things that seems to have been turned on its head is the notion of scientific debate, that if someone with a science background, and particularly if they're connected with the government, that the notion that there would be disagreement among experts um, has simply been poo-pooed as, as uh, impossible. So that when you raise questions about what experts are saying, even if they're saying two different things, you're discouraged from even considering the possibility that there's uncertainty surrounding this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, what's so, what's so strange about it is that most of us that were paying attention, at least in March or April, will remember that we were being told two different things about, say, masks, for instance. We all remember initially we were told, okay, masks don't do any good for the general public. Uh, don't don't buy masks, don't wear them, uh, because uh, healthcare workers need them. Well, that was a kind of a strange thing to say. If they don't work, why would healthcare workers need them? And then within a few weeks, right, we were told, no, you absolutely, you really need to wear a mask. And now in many places, we're under a mask mandate. And very often it was the same person telling mm-hmm. us two different things. I mean, the reality is that if you actually look at the scientific research on masks, it is complicated. There's so many ways to do it wrong. Many things that we think of as masks aren't really masks or they're not respirators. And so that was the kind of, if you were to look at the science and say, okay, I can see why they'd say maybe the general public, it's not going to likely do you any good because you don't have to necessarily wear a mask properly. They could have said that. Instead, they were essentially you know, telling us from the very beginning, well, you shouldn't wear it because the other people need it. And then all of a sudden, they, they flip-flopped on it. And so in some ways, they kind of discredited themselves, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, on almost all these things, the issues are just complicated. And when it came especially to the coronavirus, there was a bunch of stuff we simply didn't know at the beginning. We didn't know how dangerous it was going to be. We, we knew it came from China, but, you know, China wasn't giving us good information on it. They were covering things up. And then the World Health Organization for about five weeks carried water for the, the authorities in Beijing. And so it made sense that maybe in March, you know, I tend to be forgiving of public health officials and government officials early on that didn't mm-hmm. quite know what we were dealing with. What's strange, though, is that months on here, I mean, we're in October now that we're still acting like we don't know anything about this coronavirus. And we know for a fact that it's about a thousand times more dangerous to people over 70 than it is to the young. And yet we're still talking about these kind of general population-wide lockdowns rather than focus protection, in which we focus on the people that are most at risk. And then we let people that are not at much risk get back with their lives. That's what's sort of weird. It's like, 
the, the whole public health apparatus and uh, forces of government having committed to population-wide lockdowns now don't want to admit that, well, maybe those weren't the greatest idea. And so it, it just seems to be a kind of rolling barrage of lockdowns and threats of lockdowns, which continues, I think, to do to far more damage. It will ultimately do more damage both in lives and fortune than I think the coronavirus itself does. Mm. One of the chapters of the the book, The Price of Panic, is on how the virus spread. And again, we had different um, experts telling us different things about that. The masks were supposed to help. We needed to be careful about mm-hmm. surfaces and so on. Um, how how did and how does the virus spread? And what's the evolution of our understanding of that? And are we have we settled at a place where experts, in quotes, and scientists are at mm-hmm. least in agreement on that uh, factor, how it spreads? No, not at all. And in fact, I, I, it's depressing to have to report this, but when we went to work on the book, there have been over a million studies done on influenza, a kind of, you know, a, a mm-hmm. different kind of virus, but a respiratory virus, a million studies done over the decades. And we're still a bunch of stuff that we don't know. And so needless to say, there's still a lot of stuff we don't know about the coronavirus. But I can say the assumption at the beginning was that it was mainly spread either by surfaces or by essentially large particles. So sort of coughing or sneezing, you know, or you a whole blob of spit, I say, but that's the, that was what we thought. And so that was the idea about the six-foot rule, wearing surgical masks that could block that sort of thing. Well, the evidence has been growing that it's actually primarily passed by aerosols. In other words, by the very fine particulate sort of, you know, bit, tiny bits of moisture that just come out of our lungs when we're breathing. So if you're sick and asymptomatic, even if you're wearing uh, a surgical mask, it comes out of your breath like smoke and passes through those surgical masks like smoke. And so what that means is that the six foot rule and things like that, the, the surgical masks don't end up making much difference because it's probably passed by aerosols. And the World Health Organization now just in the last month um, and the CDC have, have come around and saying, okay, we think it may be being spread by aerosols. Now that could be, that'd be terrible news if this were something like Ebola, because it would basically mean there's almost no way to avoid it. The reality is at the same time that we've learned it's being passed by aerosol, we've also discovered that the, the coronavirus for the vast majority of the population is not very dangerous. In fact, if you're under 25 years old, you're much more at risk actually of dying from the flu than the coronavirus. If you're older, and especially if you have additional forms of sickness, type 2 diabetes, uh, heart disease, and things like that, then you're genuinely at risk. But for most of the population, it turns out it's just much, much less risky than we originally thought. So does that make the case for the the type of isolation that we've uh, been seeing where people are uh, called upon to um, separate themselves from one another, to uh, leave their places of business, to pull kids out of school? Is it has what you just described, has that made the case for the kind of social isolation that has been so costly? Well, yeah, that, that's the problem is that, okay, maybe that's, if everyone was equally at risk uh, of the virus and it would make sense you to have a, you know, okay, do, then we need a strategy that focuses on the entire population. The problem is that any response is going to, there's going to be cost. And so if you tell everybody they can't go to school or can't go to work, there's going to be major costs on the other side. And so that's why you want to make sure you get the details right. Because as it is, um, general population-wide lockdowns, clearing out all um, uh, basically scheduled procedures in hospitals like we did for several months. There were massive costs on the other side. We think about 80,000 cancer screenings may have been missed just in that first three months of lockdown. In other words, cancers that people had that would normally have been caught by a normal kind of doctor, uh, you know, appointment 
got missed, which means that there could be tens of thousands of additional deaths from cancer just from the lockdown. So that's the, that's the cost that's born if you lock everyone down. And so that's why you want to know, okay, who's really at risk? And then you, you do quarantines. What quarantines are, that's what we've been doing for hundreds of years. People that we know are sick and symptomatic, they're quarantined. And then you do your best to isolate and to protect the people that are really at risk. But you don't try to lock down the entire population. Not only does that lock everyone inside together, but it ends up shutting people off from other things that they're doing. That has all these massive knock-on costs, which is what many of us are experiencing, unfortunately. Now, early on, we were told that the quarantine was designed to flatten the curve so that the healthcare system mm-hmm. would not be overwhelmed. And I think most people thought that sounded reasonable because we weren't sure how uh, how serious this was going to be, and we didn't want healthcare providers to be overwhelmed. That's faded into the background. In fact, no one ever talks mm-hmm. about flattening the curve any longer. And so there's a lot of confusion around all of that. Was it reasonable, given what we at least partially know about uh, COVID-19, was it reasonable, at least initially, to have uh, shut things down with the idea that it was temporary until we could make sure the healthcare system could could handle what they were telling us were going to be large numbers of people in need of serious medical attention? It made sense at the time. So the basic idea, if you if people remember the curves, is that you had this big, mm-hmm. tall uh, you know, sort of skinny curve. And so basically that was a curve that, uh, in which the, basically without the protective measures, more, so many people would get sick that we would outstrip the healthcare system. And so there'd be all these excess deaths. In other words, people that died that could have been saved if there had been a hospital bed or something like that. And so that, you know, th- there was a sort of logic to that, that because it was based on sound epidemiology. The assumption was that, look, everybody that's going to catch this is eventually going to catch it. We can't prevent that. It's the same area under both curves, but we can at least slow down the spread just a little bit uh, so that we don't outstrip our hospital capacity. But remember, that was supposed to last, you know, the White House called it 15 days to slow Mm -hmm. the spread. But that immediately transitioned into a campaign in which we're literally trying to prevent the spread indefinitely. Well, you know, the, the original assumption of the flattening the curve diagram was that actually you can't do that. You might be able to slow it down a little bit, but you can't actually prevent it. Well, we're now about five or six months into this real delusion that somehow we're going to be able to literally prevent this from happening. And so that's why even if you look at the countries that had really hard lockdowns, uh, they still have increases in cases at different times. And you have countries like Sweden uh, that didn't have lockdowns at all that are more or less returning to normal. This, this is idea that we can kind of indefinitely control the spread of the virus in this way. That, that was a delusion, even though I do think there's a grace period there for a couple of weeks in March for the idea of the flattening the curve. The problem is, is that we didn't say, okay, well, that, okay, the hospitals didn't get overrun, so let's return things to normal. We didn't do that. And part of that is, I think, once once government gets moving and starts issuing mandates and exercising power, it has a very hard time sort of letting off the control yes. once, once the coast is cleared. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're talking with Dr. Jay Richards. He's a co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. I think many of us can see that right now as we observe what's uh, what's happened and what's going to happen. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Jay Richards. He is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. From my um, uh, standpoint, this is one of the most important books of the year, given the fact that we are still in quarantine and struggle to understand what this pandemic is all about and whether or not the responses that we've seen from uh, bureaucrats and politicians is the right approach to deal not only with the with COVID-19, the virus, but with the uh, fallout, the cost of uh, in human lives, dollars, livelihoods, and so on, uh, given the, uh, the quarantine that we've been called to. Well, let me ask you, how did science bureaucrats that were relying on murky data, and I'm not sure scientists would admit that in the, in the public sphere mm-hmm. anyway, and speculative computer models, how did they gain the power uh, to shut down the global economy? Uh, obviously, politicians are listening to them, but where did they get the uh, the the power and influence to move countries in this direction. Well, I would say it's the it's the way in which the public health apparatus is actually developed in the 20th century. And so, um, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, major politicians having health advisors that can tell them these sorts of things. But between the World Health Organization, uh, which is that's the, that's the UN's arm, public health arm, effectively, it's an arm of the of the UN. And then entities like the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, you have a, essentially a public health bureaucracy that emerged both globally with, the, with WHO and then in most countries. Almost every country has something like the CDC. Um, and, and it's that. And then they gain a kind of an official status. And then they become the sort of sole arbiters that are translating science to politicians. That's, that was really the danger. President Trump talking to the press on April the 8th, they, it was asked, okay, so why did you advise lockdowns, at least initially? And he said, well, two very smart people came into my office and they said, Mr. President, 2.2 million people are going to die if we don't shut down the country. Well, that 2.2 million number, that didn't come from any scientific evidence. That came from this computer model. Mm-hmm. Now, if the president had access to other scientists that were following this, he said, no, we don't have any reason to think that number is true. But as it was, if you have these public health officials and they have exclusive access to politicians, that's how something like this can happen. That's why we, we talk about the tyranny of experts. The problem isn't expertise or having scientific experts that advise presidents and prime ministers. The problem is when they get this kind of status of an infallible oracle in which they uh, deign to speak for scientists and science as a whole, and then politicians in some ways sort of have no choice. Now, the president actually and starting in the summer, he realized this. He realized, okay, wait, uh, the guys that are advising me don't necessarily know all the details of the science. So the president brought Dr. Scott Atlas from Stanford Medical School out. And so he now ha- he realized that after the fact that, oh, actually, science doesn't speak with one voice. And we think to prevent this from happening again, we think major political leaders, they need access to a group of scientists and experts on these things that are outside mm-hmm. the government bureaucracy so that they're genuinely independent. And don't, there's, no, there's no cost. It's not like they risk their jobs by telling the president exactly what they think. And it, unfortunately, the first time around, that's not what President Trump, that's not what most other prime ministers and presidents in other countries had. They had this kind of public health bureaucracy, which was advising them. Well, we know that uh, lockdowns were imposed on most Americans, uh, primarily through uh, state governments. 
Did the lockdowns work? If by work, I mean we reduced the number of and the spread of COVID-19. Did they work favorably, even though they weren't necessary? Uh, they didn't necessarily um, uh, do what we hoped they would do. Did they work in some way that we can say, well, it was worth it? Well, that's what we were hoping to find. We were hoping to look at this and say, okay, well, the, the, the cost of the government locking things down, the state government's locking things down was really too high, but at least there was some benefit. But what, so we mapped all the U.S. states and we did the same thing with all the countries. Uh, we can compare the ones that had lockdowns with those that didn't and with those that, you know, did something in the middle. And then we know the actual dates when state governments imposed these lockdowns. And so you can sort of picture, you can look at the case curves and you can look at the death and hospitalization curves in those different states. And if the lockdowns made a difference, you should expect that there'll be a clear signal in the curve, right? So essentially mm -hmm. the curves will start to bend down about 10 days after the government lockdown goes into effect. So that's about how long it would take for, the, for it to show up in the records. And so we did that in the book. And there's a couple of pages of diagrams. And what we found is that there is no discernible effect at all from the government lockdown. So whatever benefits there were probably happened voluntarily. The second people started hearing about this virus, we started, you know, based on our, our personal situation, we started doing things to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And then the government imposed lockdowns. I hate to say it, but they looked like they were all pain and no gain. That's honestly, Georgine, that's not what we wanted to discover, but that, that's what the data seemed to suggest. Mm -hmm. Well, then that, that raises the question of the human cost. Uh, what's going mm -hmm. to be and what has been the cost in lives, in dollars, in livelihoods, and so on? Let's talk first about the human cost of complying with what the government relying on uh, m primarily bureaucratic experts has said is in our best interest to prevent large-scale deaths. What has been the human cost to our willingly complying with what we're being told? Well, we can count it in terms of dollars. If it's in dollars, it's about a trillion dollars a month for the lockdowns. But of course, the dollars isn't what matters. The trillion dollars a month for the economy is jobs and well-being and school lunches and all the things we need. We knew that by May, end of May, the lockdowns cost about 41 million jobs or 41 million new jobless claims. Uh, we estimate there will be about 75,000 excess deaths of despair in 2020. That's deaths from suicide and drug and alcohol overdoses. So these are excess deaths of despair of about 75,000. As I mentioned earlier, probably about 80,000 missed cancer screenings just in that first three months of the lockdowns. And that's just cancer. Now you add, of course, other diseases that will, will be uh, screened. You very quickly end up, unfortunately, with more deaths caused from the lockdowns then are attributed to the coronavirus itself. And that's without getting into the obvious cost of loss of our freedom, the loss of a freedom to worship and to gather together, the loss of educational opportunities for children, the kind of countless losses that you can't really measure. Just in terms of lives and deaths, we think the lockdowns themselves will have cost more lives than the coronavirus. More lives will be lost than the coronavirus took our efforts to exactly. prevent its spread. I mean, that's very, that's staggering and it's very sobering mm. to consider, you know, we didn't get a lot of things right and we're still not getting some things, yeah. um, some things right. Well, who, who did get it right? Can you point to an area, uh, a, a perspective where it was uh, rightly interpreted and they got it right? 
Yes. In fact, there are states that we think got it right. We think Florida probably did as well as anyone could. You can't always compare states and countries because there's so much variation yes. in the population and location, of course. But Florida, Governor DeSantis, he got information from scientists in in um, in Asia and in Europe and figured out very quickly, okay, elderly, especially in nursing homes, are really at risk. And so he very quickly opened up the, most of the economy in Florida, but really focused protection uh, on the nursing homes. And that was a really smart thing to do. I can remember for months he weathered attacks from the media that he was going to let people die and all this stuff, but he toughened it out. The same thing in Sweden. I mean, who would have guessed in 2019, if you told me, okay, there's going to be this globalist push for governments to force populations to lock down, and Sweden, of all countries, will resist it. I would never <laughs> have guessed that, but they did. The one thing they, they didn't do is they didn't focus carefully on the nursing homes. And so if you look at a lot of the deaths they suffered in Sweden, unfortunately, were nursing homes. And so I would say, do what Sweden did, but focus from the very beginning on nursing homes. That's probably the best thing that you can do. It's the thing in which you get the most benefit with the lowest cost. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. My guest is the co-author of the book, Dr. Jay Richards, along with Douglas Axe and William uh, Briggs. Uh, just an excellent read, and I would encourage all of us to pick it up and read through to better understand uh, where we stand today, what the future might look like, and the kinds of lessons that uh, we have learned and need to learn as a result of this quarantine and pandemic. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up with our guest in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jay Richards, who is the co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Well, I mentioned just before the break that um, there are lessons to be learned. And my first question is, are you optimistic that we're learning? And I'm referring to those in positions of authority, making decisions about uh, whether or not a quarantine as we've experienced it will continue into the future um, or whether or not that was not the right approach. Have we learned lessons that we can apply to the future and your optimistic will be applied uh, if we find ourselves in similar circumstance in the future? Well, there are lessons at the very least. We now have a lot of information we didn't have nine months ago or mm-hmm. seven months ago. So the evidence is there. I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm a bit distressed that we don't seem to be learning the lessons. I mean, on the West Coast, certainly in Oregon, in California, it's as if nothing has happened, as if we don't know anything new about uh, about the coronavirus that we knew several months ago. There's talk by major uh, um, political candidates and uh, politicians about additional lockdowns, mm-hmm. additional uh, not quarantines. Lockdowns aren't quarantines. A quarantine is when you isolate someone who's sick from everyone else. What we're talking about is lockdowns that have devastating effects on on, on ordinary life. And so, honestly, it's a, the reason we wrote the book is we thought we need okay, kind of one-stop shopping information for people and for politicians and policy advisors to realize okay, the lockdowns are a bad thing. And there are things we can do, but we don't want to do the lockdowns again. At the moment, I feel like it's going to be a long, hard slog persuading people. I'm optimistic that, you know, right when the book came out, Georgine, there was a great Barrington Declaration came out, which is a group of now tens of thousands of scientists around the world saying essentially what we were saying, that, look, we know more about the coronavirus. It's not deadly for most people, uh, you know, uh, except for the elderly and, and those in ill health. Um, and what we want to do is 
do the focus protection. And so in some ways we felt like we were sort of, uh, you know, lonely voices crying in the wilderness initially, but there's tens of thousands of scientists that have now come out and have said this. Um, it's really, I, I think it's quite clear that the science is not simply on the side of the lockdowns. The problem is the media is continuing uh, to silence and to censor this, even with tens of thousands of well-credentialed scientists now on the record calling for focus protection rather than lockdowns, you wouldn't know that if you turned on the TV mm-hmm. and watched MSNBC or, or, or CNN, you'd think that it's, it's just business as usual. And so it's going to take a lot of work, I think, for us to penetrate uh, the sources of information that, that most of us use, which is just basically social media and the mainstream media. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. I'm noting just today I read an article that also pointed out that there's pushback from the John Snow Memorandum saying just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And again, you're not you're not even hearing that the debate is taking place, let alone which side of it we should fall on. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the John Snow Declaration was basically an attempt of scientists who wanted to defend the lockdowns. And they have every right to do that. Right. They can make that argument. But the idea that most people have is that there isn't actually even a debate on any of these yes. things. Well, the, the John Snow Declaration was it was a kind of last ditch effort to shore up the case for lockdowns. But the, the interesting thing is, is that even the World Health Organization a year ago told us that there's no good evidence that lockdowns work. And the, if you look at the John Snow Declaration, their justification for lockdowns is, again, this predictions of speculative models. If you assume that lockdowns work and you run a computer model, it lo and behold, you discover that lockdowns work. But of course, this is the same source of information that started the lockdowns in the first place. What we want to do is look at real world evidence mm-hmm. of these things. We don't want to trust these speculative models. And you look at the real world evidence. We know about what the infection fatality rate is. We know the things that work and we now know the things that don't work. And that's the debate we need to be having. Absolutely. You point out that the world will reopen one day and life will go on. But what kind of world will be will it be when it does? It can't be what it was because of what's just happened. But what might we expect? What will our brave new world, uh, our brave new normal uh, look like? Mm. And should we be concerned about the excessive power that some politicians have exercised under this global pandemic um, that they might be loath to uh, to retreat from? Yes, I mean, I think that this is where we end the book is talking about we're against the brave new normal, because the reality is, is that we think that public health emergencies are the perfect tool for tyrants. Now, we're not saying that that's the reason this happened. What we're saying is that uh, public health emergencies are the best possible argument that a tyrant could use to get a population to comply. It'd be one thing to have you know, if your president or your governor tells you, well, you've got to stay home for your own good. You just really shouldn't go out. None of us would comply with that. But instead, we've been dealt a kind of moral jujitsu in which our own moral concern is used against us so that we're told, now you need to lock yourself down, not go to work, not go to school, not for your own good, but for the good of other people. You might be carrying this virus unawares and you'll kill somebody. Well, that's using our own concern for each other uh, in some ways against us. And so we honestly think, um, you know, anyone that wants to exercise control over a population, they're going to be looking and saying, you know what, the American public, they comply willingly and with almost no objection if they think they're doing it for other people. And so that's why we honestly expect 
more public health emergencies in the future. And the reality is we might really have one, right? We might really have something that's as bad as the Spanish flu. We need to be able to use emergency powers when it's actually needed. Our fear is, of course, that it will just, it's going to become the kind of justification of choice for an increase in state power. And I think that's what we need to look out for. Mm. Well, I would highly recommend that every one of our listeners, first of all, read their Bible and then pick up a copy (laughs) of The Price of Panic, how the tyranny of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe because it helps us make sense of what we've been experiencing, what's being suggested for the future, and what we might anticipate being exploited by those who are seeking to control the American population. And again, we're not suggesting, as you uh, don't suggest in the book, that those uh, leaders who are trying to manage all of this are tyrants, but it certainly does create a uh, an environment in which there is a formula for uh, imposing right. a tyrannical uh, views. I want to thank you and your co-authors, Douglas Axe and William Briggs, so much for taking the time early on to prepare this book and to make it available to the general population, because we do need solid information, good understanding about what's happening and uh, the kinds of questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, this, uh, again, is a great resource published by Regnery, and I encourage our uh, our listeners uh, to pick it up. Are you optimistic that when people are better informed that we will uh, force, if you will, our politicians to make better um, decisions about the future? And are you hopeful that a better informed public will result in a better approach to these kinds of issues? Absolutely. That's why we wrote the book. I mean, the reality is that um, it, it only works because most of us are continuing to be terrified. And as soon as we have good information and realize what the real risk is, uh, we think it'll be impossible to maintain this. So that's why we bothered to write the book, honestly. Well, I appreciate that you bothered to write the book. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Georgie. Jay Richards, the uh, title of the book, The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe, must read for this season. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.